Let's pray for God's help. Oh Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon text this evening is Psalm 95. Psalm 95. We'll read the whole psalm, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 95. Hear now the word of God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, can you remember the last time you felt disappointed? Now, I'm not talking about that brief moment of sadness you might feel when your favorite team loses, but I'm talking about what one author described as the near-paralyzing darkness of disappointment, the kind that drains the blood from your face, turns your stomach, and catches you more off guard than an unforeseen left hook. My wife and I, we are no strangers to this kind of near-paralyzing disappointment. And in fact, it paid an unwelcome visit recently. And if I had to guess, I would guess that you're not a stranger to disappointment either. In fact, some of you may be living with this kind of disappointment right now. Well... Disappointed saints of God, be comforted today because God has given you the words of this very psalm to show you how to come to him in times of disappointment. Now, unlike some psalms, we do not have a historical introduction telling us the context So we cannot know for sure the kind of disappointment surrounding this psalm's composition. But most biblical scholars, and I think for good reason, 
see this psalm as a post-exilic psalm, which means that it was likely written after Israel was released from Babylon and returned to the land of Israel. Now, as you might imagine, this was a time of great hope. Perhaps Israel will be restored to their former glory. Maybe the temple will even be rebuilt, and God's people will finally be a shining light to all the nations of the earth. But the reality was nothing short of disappointing. In fact, Ezra described the elders weeping when they saw how pathetic and small the rebuilt temple would be. And in the book of Nehemiah, the Levites cried out to God in prayer, saying that even though they were back in the land, they were still slaves. And it's likely in this context that the psalmist writes, answering the question, how should we approach God when he has disappointed us? And the psalmist, he gives us three answers, which will be our three points this evening. He tells us first to come to God with joy, then come with reverence, and lastly, come with obedience. So come with joy, come with reverence, and come with obedience. So let us begin looking at our first point, come with joy. Now it's to this sad and disillusioned people that the psalmist invites them. Well, it's actually stronger than that. He commands them to come to God, the rock of their salvation. Now the imagery of God as rock depicts a strong fortress that they can flee to in times of need. So here, God is seen as strong and stable when Israel is weak and fragile. And the psalmist commands Israel to flee to safety, to come to the Lord. But notice the way that they are to approach God. Verse 1 says that they are to sing and make a joyful noise. Verse 2 says that they are to come with thanksgiving, and they are to make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Now, wait a minute. Has the psalmist misread the room? Can't he see that God's people are sad? Ezra describes the, re the elders entering into God's temple not with shouts of joy, but with tears of sadness. What reason do they have to sing with joy? As some of you here this evening may be so filled with sadness and disappointment that you may be asking that very same question. Why should you sing with joy even after you've been overlooked for the promotion again? 
Why should you sing with joy when the pregnancy test comes back negative again? Why should you sing with joy when you find yourself single and alone again? Well, the psalmist, he gives you a reason to sing with joy, even amidst life's greatest disappointments. Look with me at this reason in verse 3. The psalmist says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Brothers and sisters, you sing with joy, not because your life is great, but because God is great. And his greatness is unmatched. There is no God or demon or angel or man who could threaten him. For just consider for a moment his awesome power. The psalmist says, In God's hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. Now this is incredible. This means as high up as you can lift your gaze. Everything you see, God has made. And as low as you could possibly go, even there, God holds in his hand. And the psalmist, he he goes on. It's not just the heights and the depths that are in God's hand, but even the sea and the dry land are the works of his hand. Now, this is remarkable because in the ancient world, the sea was thought to be a place of chaos and wickedness. It seemed unpredictable, uncontrollable. But lo and behold, the one who not only controls the sea, but made it with his very hands. And he separated out of the sea the dry land. God does not just control what is up and what is down, but as far as you can see to your left, and as far as you can see to your right, whether land or sea, there God has marked as his own. God controls the majestic mountains and he controls the raging seas for he created them and he rules them. He is truly a great God, a great king. And the psalmist, he invites us to sing with joy because the God we are singing to is great. He's made all things and holds them in his sovereign hands. He's the maker of the mountains, the designer of the depths, the sovereign over the sea, and the divider of the dry land. He is worthy of joyful worship. So, sad saints of God, sing with joy because God deserves joyful worship praise. But joy is not the only thing that God requires of us when we come to worship him together. 
In verses 6 through 7, we see another way that we are called to enter into his presence. So look with me at these verses, starting in verse 6. The psalmist, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In verse 6, we're commanded yet again to come to the Lord. But notice that the manner is different. Now we're not coming with loud shouting and joyful singing. No, now we're coming with reverent worship. We're being commanded to bow down, to kneel before this great king, before the Lord of all, before our maker. Well, why should our loud shouts be accompanied with quiet reverence? Why should Israel enter their pathetic temple with holy fear and awe? Why should you, O disappointed one, be more overcome by the weightiness of this moment of corporate worship than even the weight of your own sadness? Well, we see why we should bow low in verse 7. It's because this great God that rules all things above and below, on sea and on dry land, he is not just our maker, but he is our God. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an honor it is To have the maker of all things be our covenant Lord. Oh, what a privilege that the one who rules all shepherds you. For God has not just created you in, in this world, but he's separated you out from the world and he has brought you into his family. You belong to his people. You are a part of his pastures. And he tends to you as a shepherd tends to his sheep. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. And oh, sad sheep of God, even though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil because he is with you. In fact, his presence is so identified with you that the psalmist says, you are the sheep of his hand. Now, we have already seen that God's hand, it holds the depth of the earth and the heights of the heavens, the heights of the mountains. His hand has made the sea and formed the dry land, but now his hand is on you. Not just because he has formed you into a people, but because he's protecting you. He's leading you because he is with you. 
And the psalmist is saying that if our maker is specially present with us as our shepherd, then this is a holy place. And we ought to bow low. For our creator, shepherd, is holy and is worthy of our reverent worship. The psalmist, he has us singing loudly with joy and bowing low with reverence. And right when it would seem as though the the psalmist is winding down his exhortation, almost unexpectedly, the God who has his hand on us speaks directly to us. One commentator, he said it well, He said, Psalm 95, it it opens in this festive mood with procession and joyful praise. The scene is set, and then suddenly, God, the one who is being celebrated, speaks and chills the festive air. God's voice, it interrupts the joyful and reverent worship, warning us of one last and most important way that we must come to him. And this last way is not just required for corporate worship, but it is necessary to enter into that which the temple The Sabbath, even our Sunday worship services all point to God's ultimate, final rest. Well, if you'll just glance your eyes over verses 8 through 11, you'll see that when God speaks, he reminds Israel of their forefathers in the wilderness. Now, their fathers were quite like them. They had been brought out of exile, and the wilderness land that they had come into was not at all like what they thought it would be like. In fact, in the the case at Meribah and Massah, the Israelites did not even have water. And the people, they, they thirsted. And they grumbled against Moses And said, and I quote, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They grumbled against Moses and God. And they tested God. In fact, Exodus 17.7 tells us that this is why it was named Meribah, which means testing. And Massah, which means quarreling. It's because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, their father's great sin was their disobedience because of their lack of faith. And this is surprising because in verse 9, we see that they had even seen God's works. They had witnessed the great exodus event where God split the Red Sea and drowned their enemies in it. They had seen the Lord make bitter water sweet and cause bread to come down from heaven. But even after seeing the works of God's hands, they did not listen 
to his voice. Instead of trusting him, they tested him. They put God on trial for parental abandonment. With every difficulty, every time their mouths thirst, they charged God with failure to provide child support. Have you brought us out to kill us? Are you with us or not? Prove it. Because of their lack of faith in God and their disobedience for 40 long years, God loathed them and he swore that they would not enter into his rest. Now this whole psalm has been about entering into God's presence. Two times the psalmist commands us to come. But here, God says there is a person who cannot come. They cannot enter. It's the hard-hearted, the disobedient. They will not enter. Notice, he's not just talking about entering into the temple or entering into corporate worship. He's talking about entering into his rest. Now, this is the rest that God himself entered into after he finished his work of creation. This is the rest that Adam failed to enter into when he disobeyed God and failed to complete his work. This rest, it was symbolized by the promised land, which God would not let them enter because of their disobedience and unbelief. But in this psalm, God has made it exceedingly clear There is only one type of person who will enter into his rest. And it is that person who, after hearing God's voice, his law, receives it with joy, reverence, and perfect obedience. And so, God places his demand upon you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but obey him perfectly. And as soon as we hear this word, we face perhaps the biggest disappointment of our lives, ourselves. For we are no different than those wilderness wanderers. In fact, this psalm could very well be autobiographical. We worship God with joy and reverence one moment. And then as soon as life gets tough, when we encounter disappointments of various kinds, we question if he is with us. We grumble and we complain. Although we know that he is worthy of joy, reverence, and obedience, our sadness often overwhelms us and we offer him none of these things. 
insofar as it depends upon you, this psalm declares to us a sad message. God has sworn in his wrath that we, the unrighteous, the unbelieving, the disobedient, will not enter his rest. God's voice, it condemns us. But brothers and sisters, do not despair. Because just as God sent the Israelites a rock by which they were saved from their thirst, so has God sent us a rock of salvation. For just as Moses struck the rock at Meribah and the saving waters began to flow, so has God sent us a rock who would be stricken for us, whose blood would flow for the forgiveness of our sins. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, This rock was Christ. Christ was stricken on the cross, just as Isaiah prophesied. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God's wrath that he swore would fall has fallen upon Christ. Oh, Christian, Jesus took your sin and God's wrath upon you to the grave. The rock of your salvation was stricken. But we need more than just the forgiveness of our sins. For we are still a sinful people. And even if our wrongs have been absolved, Psalm 95 makes it exceedingly clear that God still requires joyful, reverent, and perfect obedience for entrance into his rest. We simply cannot obey perfectly. But the good news is that we see in the Gospels that the rock of our salvation did more than just be stricken for us. In fact, he too was tempted in the wilderness and when Satan tried to tempt him with every good thing imaginable, Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father, refusing to put the Lord to the test. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus was not just a stricken rock, but he was a new Israel in the wilderness, but without sin. He was a second Adam who did not succumb to the serpent, but crushed him under his feet. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. 
And just as Adam's sin has been imputed to us all, so is Jesus' righteousness given to all who will believe in him. Behold, brothers and sisters, the rock of your salvation. He has taken away your sin and given you his righteousness. And because his earthly work is now finished, he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he has entered into God's rest. And he, he assures us that we will one day join him there. Brothers and sisters, this is glorious news. But the question still remains, how does this passage comfort our discouraged hearts? Well, we have seen in this passage that our creator and good shepherd has become the rock of our salvation. He has become like us in every way, yet without sin. He has become our righteousness and was stricken for our sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when all of your confidence seems shaken and all of your hopes seem dashed, you can be sure of one thing. When you draw near to the throne of God, you will not find God's wrath. He will not say, I have sworn in my wrath that you will not enter. But you will find mercy and grace. For after quoting this very psalm, this is exactly how the author of Hebrews concludes. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, God will not turn you away. This you can be sure of. So now let us go to the throne of grace together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Would you assure us by your Spirit that you will not turn us away when we come to you clothed in Christ's righteousness. Though the world may tremble around us, you will not give way, but you will give us mercy and grace. Help us to believe this is true, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.